And I tell my patients like every day, at least one time I'll say, okay, this is a heart attack. This is not you not trying hard enough or not doing something right. Or there's some weakness in your moral character. You're having a heart attack. Now, if you had a heart attack, what would happen? You go to the hospital, you take medicine, you do all the stuff that people are telling you to do. Right. And they're like, no, but it's not the same. You know, I'm having these negative thoughts about usually their kid or themselves. And they're like, but it's not the same. This is some moral problem within me. That was Catherine, a psychiatrist talking about her patients resisting treatment because of the mental health stigma they've internalized. In this episode of Silent Superheroes, we're doing something a little bit different. We'll be listening in on a conversation between three people who work in the mental health field. Catherine Davis, a licensed psychiatrist, Joe Guppy, a therapist turned author and teacher, and Jeremiah Bainbridge, a mental health program director with the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Seattle. In their wide-ranging conversation, Catherine, Joe, and Jeremiah discuss stigma. They dig into the ways that health benefits can help and hinder mental health care and generate a cornucopia of ideas about what businesses should be doing to support those working with mental illness. At the start of each Silent Superheroes episode, typically, I point out that me and my guests are not trained medical professionals. Of course, in this case, that's not true. But it's important to remember they aren't your trained medical professionals. So if anything you hear inspires you to change your treatment plan, please consult with your medical professional who knows your case the best. My name's James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes Podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. Welcome to Silent Superheroes. We're doing something a little bit different for this episode. So typically, I talk to a single individual about their experience with mental illness and how it shows up in their work. But uh, today I have three people with me, and these three people have uh, either currently are or have in the past played a role in mental health care. So I have with me Joe Guppy, who was formerly a a therapist, um, left therapy and became an author, the author of a book called My Fluorescent God, about his experience in uh, what I'm going to call a mental institution, a hospital. And uh, he is also a television uh, producer, has a long list of pretty amazing things he's done. So, uh, Joe, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks, James. Second guest is Catherine Davies. Catherine is a psychiatrist, has a practice that specializes in uh, supporting uh, women who, uh, in particular, uh, are dealing with postnatal, so depression, postnatal issues. So, Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you. And finally, I have Jeremiah Bainbridge. Jeremiah is a member of staff at the National Alliance for Mental Illness here in Seattle, and he is a development manager there. Thank you for having me. Maybe a place to start uh, would be, perhaps each of you could just talk briefly about what it is you do around mental health. So my work with NAMI largely entails a combination of mental health education for the public, uh, support groups and programs that help those who are experiencing mental illness, uh, whether it's the individual or families or friends who are affected. And then we also do our political advocacy as we try to advocate for policies that meet the needs of those living with mental health conditions. And additionally, we try to bring those services to places where there are serious gaps in the mental health system and for people who don't have access to basic care needs. I was in the mental health field as a therapist uh, for about uh, 20 years. So I'm a psychiatrist. Um, I actually work uh, for a hospital, and we've created a new program around here. Uh, so for sorry, It's a partial hospitalization program for women who are pregnant, actually, or postpartum. And then I also have a private practice focused on treating women. We started our program because we saw a big need for um, perinatal psychiatry. There's a lot of people who won't treat women who are pregnant. It's a question I want to start with. When we talk about mental health, for example, if we were talking about why isn't somebody uh, getting care, why aren't people talking about their mental health, the answer will be, oh, stigma. But I feel like that word doesn't actually mean anything. So what is the stigma around mental health and mental illness? 
So stigma in the workplace can look a little different than we think of it conventionally. Something that has been found, um, and this has been included in the World Health Organization's action plan for workplace mental health, is that a lot of times we see that stigma originating kind of at a management level and then at a group level. Two things that you see very frequently, one is referred to as mobbing, which is where several employees might be bullying another one. The way that might look for a mental health stigma would be um, if a group of people started using stigmatizing language towards someone and they started referring to that employee as the crazy one. So that's a way that we stigmatize mental illness. And another way is by setting unrealistic goals for individuals. That kind of mismanagement can exacerbate an existing mental illness or hurt one's mental health when they don't have a clear understanding and then that person can be stigmatized as a poor worker. And all of this kind of manifests in a stigma that focuses on the quality of the person as a worker, but then extends to them as a whole person. That's interesting. So that's a very external answer. That's It's funny because I, what I think of is what stigma people have that comes out them. And I guess maybe it has to do with external. So their loved ones or partners, parents, and then obviously bosses, right? So then I think that when I'm talking to people, they don't want to admit this thing is going on, or they don't want to ask for the things that they need because they're going to be treated differently or thought of differently because it's happened in their very close intimate relationships. And usually what I hear is people's loved ones saying they don't understand because they can't understand, like it, it hasn't happened to them before. Interestingly, I've met many healthcare workers who have treated patients with mental health problems. Then they have something happen to them. And multiple people have said to me, I didn't know this was real. I thought that they wow. were weak or faking it or, you know, like complaining or not dealing with stuff or not doing the work they need to do. So even people's, you know, doctors, nurses, whatever, their healthcare providers don't really get it. It's like almost hard to understand, even when you're the, person hearing all the symptoms. I think it's even harder for like their bosses who have a totally different set of expectations. You know, I actually think people are scared of those reactions. I think internally, there's a lot of internal struggle too with actually telling people what's going on. Exactly. And I think one of the big misunderstandings about stigma is that we get all these conflicting opinions about using mental illness as an excuse to not have to be responsible, or that's just how a person is, just be tolerant of that person's behavior. But we don't ever really think about the internal experience of that person. As far as the public misunderstanding, I really do think there is an educational need. Um, and what I found through my work with NAMI is really the best way to try to get that across is when peers, people who have experienced mental illness, come out and speak. I can talk all day about reports from the National Institute on Mental Health or any other of the mental health organizations in this world, but none of it has as much power to change minds as when I directly speak to a group of people and take conversations. And so until you really get an idea of what that person is seeing in themselves and how that illness affected their ability to interact with the world or achieve their own dreams, it's really easy to see it as weakness because I think we see it in terms of what isn't getting done instead of what the person is experiencing. And I also think there's a under, lack of understanding of how that there's treatment for people yes. and that the treatment works. I think a lot of people even people who have sometimes have these things happen to them don't understand that they can get better, like how to do that or how to address some of the things that they're not be able to do now or be back to the person they wanted to mm -hmm. be. I think there's a very lack of understanding of how long it takes. I think people mm, want to get better yeah. really fast. I think there's a lack of understanding that actually isn't just necessarily taking a medicine. And then I think there's a huge disconnect between like, and I tell my patients like every day, at least one time I'll say, okay, this is a heart attack. This is not you not trying hard enough or not doing something right or there's some weakness in your moral character. You're having a heart attack. Now, if you had a heart attack, what would happen? You go to the hospital, you take medicine, you do all the stuff that people are telling you to do, right? And they're like, no, but it's not the same. You know, I'm having these negative thoughts about usually their kid or themselves and they're like, but it's not the same. This is some moral problem within me. 
Um, and I, I think that's, again, where stigma comes in, because a lot of people have that idea, even the people who are having the symptoms, um, but that there is treatment, it can get better. Yeah, and definitely, I think there are some very strong misunderstandings about what is possible with treatment. I'd read recently that over 50% of people with schizophrenia who engage in their treatment and develop a treatment plan are able to live independently, to hold jobs, to live on their own. Even these disorders that we distance ourselves from so far all have a path to recovery. But when people hear mental illness, they hear crazy, and that's an entire change in a person's own identity. I feel people often deprive themselves of the care that will work because if they accept that help, now they're becoming a whole different person because of the label that comes with it. And that is one of the biggest stigmatizing barriers that I've noticed. I guess my idea about the entire picture, the, the big broadest picture, is to allow each individual to sort of ha have their own style, I guess, that we have many different styles that we, that we can all, that we all live, uh, different personality types. And I think that when I got out of my mental health adventure there in 79, I went immediately full on into the creative arts, which I wasn't a plan on my part, but upon reflection, I think it was because you were allowed to be crazy in 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 the theater and uh, in in improvisation and in comedy that I got into, uh, which became my my career for a couple of decades. If I said I just got out of the mental hospital, that was street cred as far as the, <laughs> in the creative scene. Uh, but I was really afraid to try to go into the straight workplace with that background. And I think the translation there is maybe the straight workplace should be a little less straight and more allowing of, of creativity in different styles. I wanted to move on and talk about some of the practical challenges that people have when they are working with a mental illness. So I'm wondering what you've observed, what sort of stories that you have that you could share to illustrate what you face if you're working with depression, anxiety, OCD, bipolar, schizophrenia, you know, whatever. My first work wasn't in the professional world. I worked in restaurants for a very long time. And uh, for much of that time, I had either received the wrong diagnosis for a mental health condition or um, was not treating my bipolar or had not found an effective treatment. One of the most difficult things for me was to have four different managers tell me that four different things were urgent and needed to be done right away. At that point, when I already have a bit of dyslexia to deal with as well as, um, you know, trying to manage bipolar disorder, which has rapid mood cycling, that kind of lack of clarity and pressure and insistence where I couldn't prioritize or take the time to make a plan and do some sort of check on my own understanding of how I was going to get through the next, next tasks would really create a huge amount of irritability and could actually start triggering rapid cycling where I might go into a fit of rage um, or it might trigger me to be hypomanic and I might suddenly become extremely productive. But almost always these episodes were followed with a depressive crash that lasted much longer. And no one really saw that. People would just see me being very productive one day and then very ornery the next day and then would categorize me as lazy for the next two weeks. So the challenges I faced often were what kind of things are going to trigger symptoms and a lot of lack of clarity and the amount of absolute urgency that was put on my work in that environment made it very difficult for me to do the self-checks that I now do when I experience uh, a mood swing where in my current workplace, I have the comfort that I can stop and identify what is the emotion that's happening? Is it justified? I can go through my whole cognitive behavioral therapy process. With a high-pressure environment, that's very difficult to achieve, and I think that that was a very big barrier. And I think that any work environment, whether it's in service or professional or civil service, um, wherever you're at, um, there are certain 
things that I've had to do as a person in recovery, and some jobs make it very difficult or impossible to be able to do the self-care necessary for me to move from task to task to have an enjoyable work day and to be productive. Catherine, I'm curious for your opinion. Jeremiah described an uh, you know, environment in which his which really negatively impacted his bipolar. Are there mental health conditions where, you know, that environment would be fine? When you were talking about that, I was actually thinking about shift work and bipolar disorder in particular. Um, and so people who have night shifts, um, people who are switching, like nurses a lot of times, have like three shifts a week and they'll do like two sh- night shifts and then have a normal shift and then do it. And that is a mess. So we had talked about disability paperwork. That's a big <laughs> part of my job is explaining what people need to help this condition like be manageable. And so things like switching back and forth between shifts is really hard on people, but sometimes it's actually required to keep a job. I had a person try to go back to a, a day shift and they said, well, if you're saying she cannot work at night, then she can't have this job anymore because she has to be available maybe if we maybe ever needed her to work at night. And I was like, uh, okay, well then I guess in that extreme situation, I guess we can say okay and put a lot of stuff into place. Um, but it was that was kind of a hard thing because she was going to lose her job. Was that a real reason or was that just blatant discrimination? Hard to tell. It felt very discriminatory to me because I was like, wait a minute. Because she was saying, I never work at night. Like, it's never going to happen. And so I'm like, okay, well, if it's never going to happen, then how come they can't just, but you apparently had to have this. And we I, should maybe for someone who's listening who doesn't, so oh yes, and right. We're talking about um, regular sleep is very important for people, right? Because bipolar. if you don't sleep, not everyone with yeah. bipolar, but a lot of times, not sleeping can trigger usually a manic episode, and then often you crash afterwards, and the depression does last a lot longer. Um, I've met many, many people who work for big tech companies around here. Obviously, there are a lot of them, and I, th- I tell them, you know, I think that this worked for you for all this time because. Your company was sort of capitalizing on this hyper productivity period, and that can last for a long time. And then they get depressed, and then they're kind of out for a while. And it's almost this pattern that people aren't recognizing because it's actually working really well for how that you know team worked or whatever. Um, I've seen that too. Though I wouldn't say like, oh, people can't work in restaurants mm-hmm. as a blanket statement, right? You recognize like, well, this isn't worth it to me. It's really messing me up. Um, mm-hmm. If you really, really wanted to work in restaurants. Yeah. could have figured it out, right? You know, mm-hmm. And so I think that's the other piece, which is it's not impossible yeah. to put stuff into play. Yeah, And I think that's a really important because um, I was still working in restaurants while going to college. Um, I had returned to school. Recovery was going well. Um, my therapist hated me for it because my <laughs> schedule was really chaotic. Um, but I I was doing okay, and I had a coworker who was experiencing severe anxiety, and the owner of the establishment was not being sympathetic. So I asked her into the office, and she was worried I was going to yell at her again. And I just sat her down, and I was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Like, there, here's my action plan for you. You live with anxiety. That's real. I know it's real. Your responsibility is to come to me as the general manager of the restaurant when you're overwhelmed, and I will get you out of this. So there is definitely a way that even a hectic restaurant job can be supportive, but it requires someone with a little empathy and some understanding to be able to say, this person is a fine worker, but they need to have a plan for when they get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. She actually was a person who is so dependent on knowing everything that um, after we kind of got her established, she became one of the training servers because she asked me every single question, which at first was, you know, a little exhausting, <laughs> but in the end made her a great person for initial contact for, for new employees. So yeah, there's definitely adjustments you can make for any number of careers. It just, um, I think she was having a lot of trouble expressing her needs Um it was just fortunate that through my decade of plus of therapy at that point that I could have a general sense at least of what she was going through and make adjustments. Her big problem had been absenteeism, which is really, really common for someone who's mm-hmm. experiencing a mental health condition. It certainly was for me. 
And I had to explain to her, okay, because this is a very time dependent job, you know, it isn't fair to other employees. Some of them have children they're trying to get home to. I was like, but I understand the condition. This is the compromise I'm going to do. I'm going to take you off of this shift, which is both very intense. It is a lucrative shift, but that's the only sort of change we're going to make. And then we're going to build you back up to where you can work any night or any time you want. So Catherine and Joe, I'm wondering, in your respective practices, what percentage of people you talk to about their work have the environment that Jeremiah provided, which was kind of empathetic, you know, good support, and what percentage had no support, stigma, hostility, etc.? It's a hard question because I don't think everyone talks to their boss or manager like I would like them to. I think sometimes are very understanding. And I think a lot of times, and I'm thinking about anxiety in particular, people think they're not doing a good job. And so when they talk to the boss, the boss is like, oh my gosh, (laughs) you're doing great. It's okay. You know, ADHD though, I've offered many multiple women who have stopped their ADHD medications in pregnancy and they don't want me to tell their boss that they have ADHD. Like, I'm like, okay, listen, we can write accommodations. You know, you're, you're not going to concentrate as much. That's, we get it. Like we can say, you can't take the medicines and here's the things that you might need. No, no, no. Don't tell my boss. Don't tell my boss I have ADHD. I'm glad to hear that the majority of experiences when somebody chooses to talk are positive. That's good news. You wonder if people are self-selecting out in many cases because the experience they're confident wouldn't be positive. Perhaps would be right. A lot of people with anxiety have really intense visualizations or vivid imaginations, if you will. And, you know, when I was talking about storytelling, it's sort of like casting the story forward and seeing a disastrous ending in in, in your mind's eye. I, I was imagining that uh, if somebody could tell their boss that that was a characteristic of their anxiety disorder, that they see pictures of disaster and and maybe they could talk that through or the boss would know that's that's the way the way they operate it it would be pretty pretty cool i guess i do think that we're pretty we i don't want to say the dark ages but i just don't really think that happens where people are upfront about well i have this propensity to depression i have this propensity to anxiety we're all on the same team we know that we each have our person our different mental health issues and we we work together to accommodate each other's aspects i could see a world where we could be that open but i don't think that's the world we live in i guess i think of it as like there's a crisis going something big has happened because i think you're right i don't think people are i think people are going to keep it to themselves until it becomes an issue and hope that maybe it's okay just listening to really corporate kind of jobs, they don't really care. <laughs> they don't care if you have to get home. They don't care. I mean, often that, that's the case. And I think those are the people who aren't sharing it. But usually when people, my patients are talking to their bosses, it's because like they can't not do it. Like they need to come out of work or they really need accommodations to go back. In that case, people have been fairly understanding, I would say. I would say that when I, when I took my current job in my first meeting there, the CEO of the company asked me a question about the word sacrifice. What does that mean to you? And I stopped and paused and like, hmm, can what you know, work sacrifices can I think about? And nothing was coming. And the only thing I could think about was this podcast. Because in doing this, obviously I'm sacrificing time and energy, but you know, more importantly, vulnerability. And so of course, as part of that, I talked about the bipolar, because that's part of why I do the podcast. And so it wasn't a crisis. In fact, it was the time of which conventional wisdom would say, like, absolutely don't say something like that, because that could get you slapped with stigma. But I figured that if I could talk about that in an interview and they hired me, it was a place that I could be me. And I don't know, I could recommend that for everybody. I think it'd be awesome for people to try it, but also, you know, real financial concerns of having to get a job and things like that. So And I think that something that we forget is every job application that I have put out or every letter of intent to hire I have signed includes the statement, are you able to do this job with reasonable accommodation? But we don't ever really talk about the fact that there are very reasonable accommodations that can be made in the workplace, but that for some reason is perceived more as a barrier to the employer or to the other staff rather than a basic accommodation that we need to make. And I think there are accommodations that are a right. It's not just 
it's not just sympathetic. These are these are laws, and they don't apply to mental health for some reason sometimes. Right, and they're supposed to. But it's really interesting to fill out disability paperwork because I get pages and pages of left leg, right leg, this, that, walk up the stairs. How much percent can they lift? How much can they sit down? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, this is not ap- applicable <laughs> to me. <laughs> I say, you know, they can't work right now because it can be really hard to, like, talk to people and like have the stress. Right. And, but it's, I have to make up, I mean, I just have to write these very long paragraphs when everybody else is just checking boxes. And also it's very extreme. They'll be like, are they, you know, having suicidal thoughts? Are they having homicidal thoughts? You know, all these things that I'm like, well, no, a lot of times, but they still can't work right now. And then I have to tell them why. And a lot of people don't want me to do that actually. Um, they're like, are you going to tell my boss this? You know, are, are you going to tell my boss I had these these things going on? And I say, well, I have to tell someone. I have to tell the disability company. Hopefully, they're not going to tell your boss. They're not supposed to. But as I've been doing this eight years, eight nine years, um, it's gotten better. I think I feel like people are more doing more accommodations and more willing to put people on disability than they were when I started. There's definitely one of the things I find very frustrating um, working in mental health advocacy. And I think this is very relevant to your story is that we, in workplace culture and in general culture, we have this need to qualify and quantify pain. And mental illness is not something we can take a marker for. You cannot examine how long the cut is that's on your leg if you have a car accident. And it's always met with this suspicion that you're making it up because it's something that can't be seen or measured. That kind of viewpoint can be a barrier if there's not that flexibility to simply trust a person's self-reporting, then we can exclude them from systems of support or their workplace or their housing. You know, James, I was wondering if in the course of doing your podcast, if it's ever come up that what we call our mental illnesses can also be sort of the flip side of our gifts and our talents. But I have heard other examples, I think, about one of the guests who um, is a systems engineer and the work that he does is like when servers are having problems whatever company that he's working for his job is to fix them but he knows he has to fix them because he gets a like a support ticket and it's like p1 p2 p3 he has adhd and so one of the things he struggles with with his adhd is the ability to sort of prioritize and organize things but this stream of tickets that's coming in that are already prioritized help him figure out what he has to do. Mm. And, you know, he's very comfortable flicking from one, you know, sort of task to another as these things come in. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, it's kind of quite a superpower, but it's mm-hmm. more about like he's found a job that matches well with his mm-hmm. condition. And that OCD is something that makes you very good at certain jobs, like being a lawyer, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and the conversation that I have is like, okay, okay, I get it. It's helping you be a better lawyer and it's probably getting in the way in some way. So how can we kind of, you know, rain, like keep the stuff that's good about right. it, yeah. but the stuff that's too much, that's causing you problems. Like, mm-hmm. I think you could probably get more yeah. done with your, you know, if we could kind of tamp the OCD down a little bit, that's a conversation I have multiple times. People are like, but I like it. And, and bipolar disorder as well. I like this. I don't, I don't like how I feel in the medicine. I have the good parts, you know, and so right. really kind of balancing that. Have you observed other, you know, condition, stroke, job type matches? I think anxious people do very well in the workplace in general, right? I mean, again, generalizations, but I feel like people who have anxiety tend to sort of high achieve at everything because they're worried about not doing well. And actually, again, my job is to kind of like take that back down, like, okay, you know, you've always done perfect and you've always been the best. And, and of course, also my patients have a baby usually now. So now it's like, ah, now I can't be best. Right. And I have this other thing. Plus, plus I'm saying, well, you actually have anxiety. And so I think that sometimes is something I'm saying, okay, okay. It's good that you have it. Let's figure out how it can not kind of keep messing you up. And people's pretty stressed about not doing perfect a lot of times. Thank you for that. Because I feel like some of the anxious people I know hearing that will bring them some comfort. Because most anxious people don't realize they're doing a good job. <laughs> right? They're too anxious. <laughs> they're too anxious. Yeah. And we see it's one of the most prevalent workplace mental health conditions, sure. anxiety and depression mm-hmm. kind of reign at the top. And most people don't know they have anxiety. Oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many people are like, whoa, whoa, really? This is anxiety? I thought I was just this way. Yeah. This is my personality. Yeah. 
really loved it when Joe said, if I said I just got out of the mental hospital, that was street cred in the creative scene, but I was really afraid to go into the straight workplace. It was funny and beautifully said, and it had an element of a deeper truth. Someone who fits in one place might not fit in another. Creative art and what Joe described as the straight workplace are far apart in what the day-to-day work is like. But no matter what the work you do, creative arts, the service industry, medicine, etc., none of us are perfect fits. So there needs to be some give and take that makes the relationship work for both parties. The problem is, many businesses are not good at give and take. In fact, there are many that, to be honest, are mostly take. Believing that because they magnanimously gave you a job, they hold all the cards and expect nothing less than absolute devotion. This is true, of course, whether you have a mental illness or not. It shows up as parents who feel guilty for leaving to pick up their children from school, or young people skipping out on social dates to stay late and get that project finished. You might say, but that's the price of success. That's their choice to make those sacrifices. There's truth in that, but... It's also true that we've become acculturated to prioritize work above all else. It hasn't always been this way. I was talking to somebody recently who was considering getting a dog. A big part of her decision-making process was whether she could afford to find one hour every day to walk the dog. You might think that's a reasonable consideration for a responsible dog owner, but think about what's driving that decision. It's the idea of, can I fit it all in? Work didn't used to demand so much of us. Even in my childhood, the idea of finding one hour of personal time to look after a pet was not a big deal. And don't forget, there's ample evidence that working long hours is detrimental to job performance. I'll put a link to a Harvard Business Review article in the show notes. So we have the prevailing winds, which are expectations of long, hard work. And then for those people working with mental illness, they have to deal with the headwind of stigma. It was shocking to hear from Catherine that there are people in the medical profession who didn't believe mental illness was real until they experienced it for themselves. All told, people with mental illness face an uphill struggle being successful in the workplace. And it's tempting to give up. But it doesn't get any better by staying in the shadows and not standing up for what we need to be successful. As we move into the second half of the discussion, Joe, Jeremiah, and Catherine start to generate some ideas for what we should be demanding and how there are situations when our illnesses can become superpowers. Let's turn our attention to the businesses themselves, the HR teams, the managers, the the leaders. So let's assume for a second perhaps that they're listening in. What would you ask them to change? What would you ask them to do differently? Pick any of those groups. A big one for this. Uh, so one thing that I've noticed um, is that when when companies are picking health insurance plans um, in order to save money, they'll carve out mental health care, um, which means that they have some great insurance company that has good pays well and people a lot of doctors will take right. So they'll say, "Oh, we have wonderful so and so insurance." Um, but when you try to get mental health care with that insurance, it's actually not that company at all. It's a carve out. So it's some other company they've contacted with just for their mental health. And often it's not good. So if you were with the big company, there would be a lot of good benefits, um, but not so much with a carve out. And that's to save money because it, I feel like, and this makes sense to me financially, it's a long treatment. You don't know how long it's going to be. I think therapy in particular, like psychotherapy, paying for psychotherapy and counseling, it's kind of, they feel like it's a black hole, right? Like this could be forever. And it really should be long-term for a lot of mental health conditions. Um, and so that's why I think it happens because it just feels like all the money is going that way. Um, I thought that we had mental health parity. <laughs> um, nope. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were excited about that, uh, which means if, uh, which means that it's the same for mental health. Like you get the same kind of benefits as you do for anything, any medical, other medical problem. But unfortunately, this kind of carve out thing has caused a problem because a lot of doctors or therapists won't take their insurance. They can't find someone. And it's very frustrating to me. I can say that when I was a therapist in private practice, which I did for 10 years, there were uh, certain insurance plans that almost nobody would take. It would be like, and and I didn't think it was because the therapists were being greedy. It would be like, 
$55 an hour, mm-hmm. uh, which that's $55 for the session hour, which is not the same as the paperwork you do or the notes you take or other things behind the scenes that you, that you need to do. And, uh, the pay was just so low that almost no colleague that I knew would, would take that insurance. And there were a couple of major providers in that category. And I always thought the people that have this insurance, who are they seeing? They're not seeing anybody I know. There was, I knew one guy who was like super nice guy and he would take any insurance. And he was a really good therapist, but most people I knew wouldn't just, just didn't feel they could financially survive taking that insurance. I have done some lobbying in Olympia, and mental health parity is something that we emphasize. And we have really talented people who are professors or lawyers, and trying to get to the bottom of where mental health parity is failing has just been so difficult for just a little nonprofit organization like Mm -hmm. us that we, we find things that are more actionable. We definitely hear a lot of insurance related difficulties from the people we support. We see and support people from all different ages and income levels and cultures, but people even with gold plated insurance, Mm -hmm. people with the best plan from a major employer uh, will have a child, um, or they themselves will need medical or mental health care. And suddenly that insurance, which was supposed to be the best on the block, is completely useless. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole other system of the state can be saying, well, we can get this person into an inpatient facility, but it's on insurance. And insurance will say, no, 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 that's supposed to go to the state now. And the state will say, well, insurance didn't file this paperwork. And in all the time that people are trying to sort out who's going to pay for what, people can go into crisis and people can attempt or commit suicide. People can lose their jobs or become incarcerated. So not having that smooth transition of having insurance actually meet that parity or at the very least have an understanding of how services wrap from one to another results in these terrible spaces where there is no care. And that's when crisis can happen. And there, I remember there were a lot of arcane rules. Like for when I was talking about uh, the low paying insurance companies, you might get the bright idea like, well, well I'm kind of a pro bono kind of a guy. I, I can take a, uh, one Cigna and one Aetna on my cl- on my client roster, and the rest will be Premier and Regents uh, or or private pay. But that kind of thing doesn't fly. There's rules against stuff like that. You couldn't limit. It'd be uh, a violation of your contract if you if you with with Cigna if you said, "Well, I'll take two Cygnas and that's it," because you guys pay so crappy. That that would be a violation of the agreement that you signed with them that that you would discriminate against uh, their insurance. So therefore, you end up just not taking it at all. Every time I have one of these conversations and healthcare comes up, like I just start to get mad, my head explodes. <laughs> so I'm not going to let that happen. If you want to deviate from healthcare, um, <laughs> one do. thing that I have definitely noticed is that not only do employers not have a mental health plan in place, but they don't even have core values for the actual office culture. So for instance, at NAMI, we have our four core values of that emphasize kindness and integrity and support and empathy. I find that a lot of employers don't even have that groundwork of what is the culture we actually want to foster. That lack of just understanding that there needs to be that kind of guideline to establish a compassionate culture in the workplace Without that, it's it's no wonder to me that they can't quite get their bearings on how to get started on mental health if you don't even know what kind of culture you're trying to support. From time to time, people in the HR profession will ask me the question, like, well, how should we start talking about mental health at work? And I always ask them, first reflect on how you talk about and think about physical health. If you're a workplace that is in the habit of like sick day shaming, vacation shaming or something like that, like just don't even bother trying to talk about mental health. Like just start. <laughs> Too far to go. <laughs> exactly. Like just start with trying to fix some of those basic problems. And then once you got that done, then talk about mental health. And I've definitely heard people and friends and other outside colleagues uh, in the tech industry in particular where they're allowed to have mental health days, but that will turn off your metrics. And then your metrics will drop and then you're not meeting the productivity standards. 
And so while you've done nothing wrong by taking care of your mental health, you've fallen behind and the chance of getting that full-time employee it's like designed status. that way. Yeah. So it's like, no, no, no. You know, this work can be intense. Take a break. Oh, by the way, from taking a break, you're now on probation because your numbers are down yeah. because you weren't working that one day. One thing I think a lot of patients utilize is the EAP, the Employee Assistance Program, mm-hmm. which obviously not all companies have, but big ones do. Um, and that's good. I think that the only problem with it is it's not enough. So most people get six visits, which is a really short amount. And the thing that really bothers me is they'll hook you up with a therapist who doesn't take their insurance. <laughs> so then they've done their six visits. They've connected with this person. They've started the treatment and they're like, well, this person's out of network for my, which to me is like, it blows my mind. That's like, amazing. They're in, in the company. Way. The yeah. company is finding the person for them. So that would be something they could improve, which is if they're connecting people with therapists, which is a great idea that they could see them more than six times. It could be somebody then their insurance could take over. And if we're creating an ideal world for a second, I want to go one step further. And the next step is not just therapists that are taking your insurance, but therapists that are taking your insurance and new patients. Oh, yes, that's right, too, because the lists, they'll give them six people. These are the only six, and they're like, well, none of them are taking patients. Or they're not a good fit. They have some weird – I had somebody say, you know, and this particular person didn't want a Christian therapist. And she's like, well, there's three. One's in Bothell, and she lived, like, far away, and two are Christian therapists. So, like, I don't know what to do. And that was kind of her options, you know. And one of the big difficulties I had in recovery was getting bounced from intern to intern to intern because at the time, the only thing I could receive was a community-based system. This was before the Affordable Care Act, so it was a pre-existing condition for me. I could not be insured for anything. Mm. And uh, it really wasn't until the Affordable Care Act came into implementation so I could get insurance at all that then I could move to one of the full-time therapists who was at the clinic but would only see clients with insurance at a clinic designed for clients that were most likely not going to have insurance. And it really didn't make a lot of sense. But when I did finally get to that actual therapist that was covered by my insurance, it was still expensive. But And I was able to work with this one person for six years. That's where recovery started for me. I think I had just, I had never had a therapist I worked with for a solid year straight for one reason or another. I have one more for like, if we're doing the ideal work, like what could work do? And this is like kind of off topic, but to to my patients, very important. I think that work, health insurance doesn't cover this, but work plans should cover couples therapy because Mm -hmm. we're talking a lot about individual. um, And I think that, Working with couples can it's very it can be very stabilizing to have that relationship. I think that especially when people have babies, but all the time, yeah. um, that can be a very destabilizing situation. So you could go to individual therapy maybe, but not be able to address that, and it's basically never covered. So mm-hmm. it would be awesome if it could be like this extra thing that that jobs would cover because I think it would help individual mental health and workers a lot as well. That's a great suggestion. What other ideas do we have? <laughs> Well, some of the work that I've been doing recently in the research really talks about what headspace is the manager or the HR person in when they're approaching a situation where there might be a mental health issue affecting an employee. There is a pretty long list of checks that one should do on oneself before doing these sorts of things. One is ensuring that you have time. Managers can be very busy people, but it's very important to actually block off real time to have a conversation, to check your own implicit biases, to make sure that you don't have any bias that might be interfering with your ability to communicate. Make sure you're acting on actual events and not on hearsay or mobbing from outside of the group. A lot of the responsibility we forget goes on the individual who's intervening or who's charged with investigating or disciplining this person. And it's very, very easy to create a scenario where the person feels attacked. There, we've already talked about stigma and how people will just deny that they have a problem because admitting it is even worse. So part of the way that any employer can be better about their mental health is not just the general education, but making sure that managers know that there's a way to approach an issue like this that promotes dignity, that doesn't diminish anyone involved in the situation, whether it's the person who's experiencing mental health symptoms or the other employees, that you just keep in mind that this is an issue 
that is affecting the individual. Um, you put aside how it's affecting work and you put yourself in a mindset of what strategies are we going to create? And as we had talked about, as Joe had mentioned, with the idea that certain illnesses might bring certain other aspects of skills, like it may make you more creative. You may feel more energetic in one environment than another. Uh, having the acceptance that some flexibility and allowing people to shift their jobs a little bit so that the things that they are talented at and they understand are something that are made more of an option. Flexibility is the word that you used. And I think maybe people when you're these scenarios are approaching somebody like they would normally with any like, oh, this person's late all the time. Mm -hmm. And also just understanding the whole thing, maybe even just finding out what's going on, like yeah. asking more questions versus like saying you're on a disciplinary plan now. and yeah you're in trouble well, just saying yeah. like what's going on like actually just having a conversation with people i think yeah be great that i'm not goes, sure that happens <laughs> that goes along with yeah avoiding yeah. hearsay and right. you know rumors pushing those out of out of the question and doing some actual investigation it's also very tricky like as a person living with bipolar so often i've been asked what do you need mm. and i just don't know if so I true. knew, I would ask you, <laughs> but, um, but it, it, that's why having and taking the time to really address the employee's needs is important because you may not get the answer or develop an action plan in that 15 minute meeting you scheduled just after lunch. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. It's, it can be an ongoing conversation because that person may not know what they need yet. They may still just be discovering the nature of the illness they live with. Uh, there can be a lot of different reasons, but that's why taking time and showing some patience really is something that managers need to be trained to do. I've asked for a couple of things. One is kind of the permission that if I've unbeknownst to me slipped into a, a depression, like I can't face being around people. So the permission to call in and say, hey, I'm going to work from home today yes. you know, as best I can. Work okay. from home. Work option. from home. Yeah. Um, the second one, which I asked recently was, I realized that I don't have always good awareness of where my mood is. So if I'm particularly up or particularly down. So I explicitly gave my team permission. If you notice that you know my mood has changed, you have my permission to let me know because you actually may be doing me a favor by telling me like, my experience so far has been that they don't notice, which is kind of funny with the whole Silent Superheroes mask thing. It's like, <laughs> wow, am I that good at, at masking it? But then, to be fair, I've also been, for a lot of the winter, I was in a sort of fairly steady depression, and so I wasn't really going up or down much. I think that's also interesting because, and I don't remember the symptom name, but it's uh, something that I experienced. I honestly didn't even learn that this was a symptom until this year somehow, which is the inability to perceive those mood changes are a symptom. And I can remember so many times when people are like, you know, what's with you lately? And I really did feel like I was the same as I was a month ago. And that's kind of one of those confusing things is someone saying I'm fine when they're not because of fear of stigma or is it just something that that person isn't able to recognize in themselves? I don't have a good answer on how to approach that because I really kind of just learned about that as an actual symptom and not just my personal orneriness. So <laughs> the fact that the person experiencing the condition might not even recognize that their mood shift is happening is, you know, it's important, I think, to be aware of that as well. I wanted to pick up on the flexibility point that we were talking about. And I think you kind of talked about this, but I just want to kind of really put a pin in it which is a lot of managers have a bias for a particular style of work. You know, you're only successful if you get up early and get into the office early and, you know, crank away all day at your desk. Then I think that flexibility for managers to learn that actually you can accomplish work and results in lots of different ways is really important. One of the things I'm slowly learning with bipolar is kind of the importance of working in a steady way versus like just allowing myself to slip into hypermania and get a ton of stuff done and then like slow down like consciously trying not to put too much on my plate because then i'll want to work really hard and if i work really hard that you know, slips me into the hypermania you know, my yeah, I, i've run into lots of yeah managers who are like you can't work from home and i mean you have to have a letter from the doctor and it has to say how many days you could and i'm like what? and the person's going this job like 
I sit at my desk on the computer. There, nobody is even in the office. Like remote job, you know, like from some other com- some other state that everybody else is there, but they're not allowing them to stay at home. And I, I think it's like a, you're just hanging out at home in your pajamas and you're not working. I don't know. But I think that work from home option, you're talking about that flexible. Yeah. I do think that's a trap sometimes, that flexible job. But, mm-hmm. but I think being able to work from home when it makes sense. Most people aren't going to ask to work from home if they're going to give a talk that day. You know, I mean, what I've found is people don't want to take this stuff, right? It's like they don't want to ask for stuff. It's, I'm like, here, here, here's things you should do. Like, it would help you. I'm trying to convince them to do that stuff because they're like really wanting to be a good worker. So if it was okay to be a good worker and work from home sometimes, that would be great. And then there are also, of course, those jobs where you don't have that option. Yeah. And so there are different types of accommodations that need to be made. Um, you know, working in a restaurant, I can't say, hey, could I drop this margarita off tomorrow? Is it okay if I <laughs> schedule that a little later? Um you know, so there are jobs with urgency, and that's a place where looking at things like how well staffed are you? If there's one person and they're the only person who can do this job, and it's not, you know, a hyper advanced skill job, then it, that seems like a, a damaging part of the infrastructure right. more than a, should be blamed on the employee because human beings have limits. Yeah. Um, and You've created your own business continuity problem there, right? Which is you don't exactly you know you don't have coverage if one person. Yeah, that's not just a restaurant problem. Something that's helped my mental health immensely now is I really can just email someone and say, "Hey, if it's not critical, can I get this report to you tomorrow?" And they're like, "Oh, sure." And then my anxiety is instant relief because I took something off my plate for today and moved it. But there are so many jobs. you know, I'm sure emergency room workers is another I'd say all really healthcare. good example. All healthcare mm-hmm. where there aren't enough bodies to do the job. And so one person having to take time off for their mental health is seen as catastrophic. And that starts to generate that stigma. And then we get through the whole conversation that we've had. And I wanted to return to this, the idea about the value statement or the, uh, the mission statement in terms of this idea that uh, of storytelling, positive storytelling. I think uh, the root of a lot of depression is the negative story that people have in their mind about their own lives. And if you go to a workplace where the all that's being served is like the capitalistic machine and people feel like they're being ground up in the gears, as Charlie Chaplin was literally in, in modern times, and they see no meaning in the work that they do day to day, then that's a like a recipe for depression. Not to mention if a company examines its core values and its mission statement in terms of like making the world a better place rather than just making making money, then the world would become a better place. So I think that that works both ways. I think it both would energize the business to take a look at their core values and, and their mission statement and make it a, a positive thing. And then by making that very public to the workers, like this is what we're doing that's good in the world, that gives the the worker comes to work each day saying, I'm part of a positive story right now, rather than I'm a a depressed cog in a machine. In his book, Lost Connections, Johan Hari talks about some of the research that's been done into depression. And one of the focuses of the book is on meaning in work and kind of makes the case that Meaning has been kind of for many people just subtracted from work over the course of, you know, 50, 60 years, you know, and there's research that supports that that's one of the things that would make somebody more likely to get depression. Mm. Kind of coming up on time here and maybe to wrap us up, I would love to hear from each of you if you could deliver a single message to any constituent in work, you know, like HR managers, you know, healthcare companies, stock market. If you could deliver just one message to them, what would it be? I feel like I do this all day. It's just try to convince people that these are real things that are happening and it's okay. And that it doesn't mean anything like it's a moral failing. And, and again, sort of what Joe's been talking about, like it, it makes you who you are and they're good things and they're challenging things. And that's the makeup of the person. And and so that's okay. And if we can create an environment where it's okay to talk about the challenges and to get support around the challenges and work is so important. It takes so much time um, out of our days. You know, my, my patients, they spend a lot of time often with their babies in maternity leave, and then they go back and they're like, I've never seen my kid. Like I'm at work all the time. And that's true. It's so much of our lives in that environment. It could be more accepted to understand and help support people. I think that would make a huge difference. And it might actually trickle down <laughs> 
into the other parts of life. Who needs to hear that message? Probably everybody. Everybody. I think okay. Americans. I don't know, because I feel like I'm gonna box you in. You're gonna say I have to decide who you have to pick one one person one, to hear the Well, one person, one, you know, group of people if you like. Okay, supervisors. I don't know, because that's a person who has very direct right. contact, but really the people themselves who have the stuff too. I mean and people's friends. I don't know. Boxing <laughs> me and I don't like to be boxed in. I'll pick my uh, constituency <laughs> right off the bat, and then I'm not quite sure what I'm gonna say, but so the constituency that I would talk to is uh, CEOs, and the first thing I'd point out is that uh, CEOs are often known for their own quirky personalities. We don't go around saying, oh, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates are mentally ill, but we know these legendary stories of their OCD qualities or their autistic qualities or whatever, and then that's trumpeted as this tremendous superpower that they have that made them so good at what they do. And I think it's actually true. And so why not celebrate that same diversity of creativity and thought in the uh, in all the way throughout the organization? I think I would largely like to speak with hiring managers, HR managers, and project leaders or emphasize to them that mental illness is real. And not only mental illness is real, but mental health exists on a spectrum. Some people are born with a predisposition towards a severe mental illness. Some people experience trauma. This is something that's probably going to happen to one in five of your employees every single year. And so be proactive having someone speak about their own personal experience to your workforce is useful. For a semi-plug, you could use NAMI's programs, of course, which um, we don't turn anyone away for those programs, but also having someone who's part of your workforce who's willing to talk openly about their experience can also be useful. And have the resources accumulated for someone who might be in crisis or moving towards crisis. You, that could be NAMI's helpline. That could be a different organization. It can be the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's hotline, the National Crisis Line. So that person feels comfortable coming out and saying, I've noticed my anxiety is increasing or I'm feeling depressed or talking about a pre-existing mental health condition so that you can move towards tools of empowerment. It's okay to not know how to fix every mental health problem at work, but by getting ahead of the situation and encouraging, you know, maintenance care and preventative care. And because I did it, Catherine, I'm going to do it to you. You gave three constituencies, which were supervisors, HR managers, and project leaders. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to put you in a box and ask you to pick one who most needs to hear what you said. I actually think that in terms of professional jobs, whoever is leading a project might be the person who most needs to hear that because that person is going to be the first contact point for whoever you're working with. That could be project manager, shift supervisor, whatever term the company has. And that's also a person who can serve in between the upper management because the upper management is going to be putting the pressure downward to enhance productivity. And then that pressure is going to go down onto the staff. And it's just kind of a cycle or a ladder of disempowerment in a way. That's great. And I, so I think I, with our very small survey here, it feels like people who are in positions of management, Joe's case, very most senior management, but people who are managing at the company, they dictate the culture, they dictate how people feel safe or not. Joe, Catherine, Jeremiah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. There are elements of this episode that, to be honest, are discouraging. The challenges with mental health benefits and insurance carve-outs, gaps in the patchwork of medical insurance and state programs, and even medical professionals who don't believe mental illness is real. But there's also a lot to be encouraged by. There are people out there fighting on all levels. There's Jeremiah, when he was general manager, trying to find ways to accommodate a server's anxiety. There's Catherine, building a psychiatry practice to support a specific community that needs extra help. There's Joe tackling stigma by sharing his experience going to a mental hospital. There's Jeremiah and the good people of NAMI Seattle going to lawmakers and advocating for change. There are people like me getting in front of audiences of managers and HR professionals saying, this is what bipolar looks like, and here's what my silent superheroes need. Then there are the 21 silent superheroes who have told their story through this podcast. And then there's you. If you're listening to this podcast and managing a mental illness, you can be part of the change by standing up 
sharing your story and saying, I'm not afraid, I'm not ashamed, I'm a silent superhero. If you like what you heard in today's episode, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to hear about new episodes as they're released, you can sign up for our newsletter at silentsuperheroes.com. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash. To help others find the Silent Superheroes podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service.